For a while, many years ago, I had this weekly gig, just me and my acoustic guitar, in a bar at a steakhouse in Arcadia, California. I played Sundays from 7 p.m. to midnight. It was a great gig. I'm lying. It was horrible. But it was a place to hone my solo act and try to see if I could keep an audience's attention by myself. The band that I was playing with broke up, and it was a drag, because it was a great bunch of guys, but after trying a bunch of different dead-end lineups, it was obvious the thing had just run its course. So I'd started playing these solo acoustic shows. I didn't care if it was an open mic or warming up for someone, whatever, I just wanted to be out playing. I'd been introduced to this woman from Tennessee named Ellie. She crewed on films, commercials, and TV shows. When she was in L.A., she'd come and see me play if I had a show. She saw me one night and she said, Man, y'all should come out play in Tennessee. I know a bunch of people in clubs and whatnot. They'd love you out there. I said, okay, you set up the shows and I'll come out and play. She said, good enough, I'll do it. I'd completely forgotten about that conversation until a week or so later when Ellie called me from Tennessee and said, All right, I got you 24 shows. You can stay here at my place for the local ones, then you're on your own for the shows out of state. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Was I going on tour? Yep. A month later, I flew into Mobile, Alabama. Me, my acoustic guitar, and a backpack. After all those years at shitty jobs and slogging through bars and clubs in L.A. with my band, I never had time to go anywhere to speak of. And now here I was in the South with 24 shows to play. It felt kind of cool. Yeah. Now this was 1993, so there were no cell phones. No computers that really did anything worth talking about yet. So I got around with roadmaps and payphones. Back then there weren't even really any ATMs in that part of the country. There was still kind of a novelty in the big cities at that point. I remember standing in a long line in Pasadena at the first ATM I ever saw. Each transaction took about five full minutes. I think there were 10 people in front of me, so I was standing there for 50 or 55 minutes waiting to get 20 bucks out of a hole in the wall, just because it was possible. But there in Alabama, if I needed money, I had to go find a bank and go write a check. Things have changed a whole lot in very little time. Oh God, I can't believe this. When there was a time when I could drink my blues away. My first gig was at a place in Mobile called Trinity's. It was a steakhouse, very much like the place I was playing back in California. After I'd arrived and introduced myself, I asked where the PA was so I could set up. I was informed that the bands usually brought their own. That would have been great information to have beforehand. I told the folks that ran the place, who were very nice incidentally, that I didn't have a PA as I'd traveled from the other side of the country, under the assumption that one would be provided by the venue. They told me it was okay. I should just sit on the steps by the bar and play unplugged. Oh, neat. But I did it. I'm saving fear of you 
and it was lame. But the owners asked if I could come back and play again the following Thursday, which was nice of them. I agreed as I had a day off then. After the show, I was having a drink at the bar, and I met a guy named Ted. Just met a real nice guy named Ted. He'd just moved to Mobile after being in the Air Force in Tacoma, Washington, where he taught new recruits chemical and nuclear warfare. I told him that sounded very intense. He told me, yeah, I finally had to quit the service. It's all bullshit. Complete bullshit. Why the fuck you want to teach people to kill for when it's hard enough just to fucking live? Words of wisdom, Ted. Then he said, Anyway, hell, you know, I really like uh, country music. I don't much care for country western, but I sure do love country. I had to go and check the sign outside to make sure I was at Trinity's and not Bob's Country Bunker with the good old Blues Brothers boys. Rolling, rolling, rolling. So, I had 24 gigs. One down, one new one added. 24 to go. One thing I noticed immediately in Mobile was that in general, black people were basically treated like second-class citizens. It seemed that they did all the jobs no one else wanted to do, much like Latinos in LA. Coming from Southern California, where black culture was so strong in every way, it was weird to see black people having to take a social backseat and to be demure around white people. I didn't like it, not a bit. It made me ask myself about what my relationship with Latinos back in LA was. Why did this bother me with black people in the South, but I accepted it at home with Latinos? Was I just used to it? How did I treat people? Was I part of the problem? Was I an asshole? I was now running ongoing equipment checks on myself, asking myself hard questions. The second night in Mobile, I was in a bar drinking, pretending to care about whatever sports thing was happening, but really I was eavesdropping. I have an addiction to listening in on conversations that are none of my business. Also, there's something to be said for just shutting the fuck up and listening for a change. Anyway, I was getting an earful at this dive. I noticed that a lot of people in the bar were dropping the N-word like it was nothing. There were at least three black staffers with an earshot of the N-bombs, but they didn't react at all. It was making me mighty uncomfortable. A commercial came on the TV for a special about Martin Luther King, as it was his birthday in a few days. The bartender turned to one of the black staffers and said, Hey Leon, what are you doing for shit Monday? The bar erupted with real hillbilly laughter. Leon just walked back into the kitchen. I bailed. That was enough for one night. Ellie, the woman who got me the 24 gigs, called to tell me that she had kin in Mobile and I'd been invited to have dinner at their house. Oh no, I didn't want to go to some stranger's house and have them cook for me. I started to decline the invitation, and Ellie said, Shut your mouth, you're going. Fuck. Well, I said, can you at least let them know that I'm a vegetarian, please? Oh shit, forgot about that shit, she said. Ellie's kin turned out to be wonderful people. It was a big family dinner. Everyone had been hip that I was a non-meat eater, and Ellie's sister had made a bunch of sides to go with the roast on the table. So I had baked beans, corn, salad, biscuits, yams. It was great. My vegetarianism seemed to be a non-issue. Until a little later when the man of the house, 
Craig, who ran a transmission shop on the outskirts of Mobile, got a few drinks in him. And he said, Hey man, let me show you something. He brought me into the living room, and for the next 45 minutes I was treated to home movies of Craig and his buddies on hunting trips, blowing the shit out of deer and rabbits, then skinning and cleaning the carcasses. It was a total dick move. He was obviously just trying to get a rise out of me, but he seemed genuinely let down when I started asking questions about the best seasons for hunting certain animals, what kind of guns they were using, how long he'd been hunting, and what was the biggest buck he ever bagged. I gave him nothing but respect back. Clearly he was expecting something else. What was the end game, I wondered? That I was going to be offended? Tell him that hunting was really mean and then swish home in my little veggie panties? Or was he just busting my balls a little? Who knows? Anyway, what a cunt. The next evening, I was playing in Mobile at a place called the Lumberyard. Not wanting to repeat my no-PA mistake I made at the last club, I went to the Lumberyard early in the afternoon to scope the place out. It was a huge room. They were open, but there was no one in the place. I found the owner, Demi, and told him about the last place not having a PA. Demi said that they didn't have a PA either, but he added, eh, Look around. There's no one here. Tonight it'll be just like this. Dead. This place is a barn. You don't need a PA. Your voice will carry. It's gonna be fine. I was really skeptical, but ignoring all my better instincts, I told Demi I'd see him a bit later. When I got back to the lumberyard around 7.30 p.m. that night, I got quite a shock. The massive parking lot was completely full. I had to park a couple of blocks away on a side street. Uh-oh. I walked into the bar, and I kid you not when I tell you there were approximately a thousand people in there. The loudest crowd I've ever heard, screaming, whooping, and yeehawing. I found Demi among the throng of knuckleheads. We were two feet apart, but both of us had to scream at the top of our voices just to hear each other above the din and clatter. Evidently, there'd been a big Civil War football game across town, and everyone in the crowd, winners and losers, decided it would be a perfect idea to keep the party going over at the lumberyard. Hundreds of drunken, redneck football maniacs. I said to Demi that I guess that was it then. He said, no, no, I want you to play. I asked him how that was supposed to work. No PA, no nothing? He said... Well, will you do me a favor and just try? Oh, boy. Well, shit, I'm all the way here. I might as well see this nightmare through. So I walked with my guitar over to the stage, which was a tiny platform about six inches high. There was a girl standing on my stage talking to someone. I tapped her on the shoulder and held up my guitar so she could follow the thread. She just stared at me, then turned away. I tapped again. I pointed down at the platform and then at my guitar. She figured it out and stepped down. I began to play. I couldn't hear one note that I was singing or strumming. I heard nothing but the shrill and thunderous cacophony of the crowd. I played like that for about 40 minutes. No one even looked at me. At one point, a young guy about three feet away with his back to me turned around, looked at me, looked away, did a double take, then looked at the ground totally confused. You and me both, pal. He had no idea I'd been playing, and he seemed absolutely shocked that I was standing there with my guitar. Thankfully, I broke a string. I put my guitar away, 
stepped off my stage and found Demi. Well, that didn't work out, he said, but thanks for being here. And he disappeared into the back room. I was walking out the front door when a hand touched my shoulder. I turned around and there was one of the waitresses, a gorgeous girl, about 24. She said, Hi, I wanted to give you this. And she was holding up two dollar bills. You know, for a tip, she said. I told her thanks, it's okay. She grabbed my hand and stuck the money in it. No, hon, I want to give you this. You were real good. It's just that no one could hear you, she said. She went back to her duties. I'm not going to kid you. I was feeling pretty low. This wasn't going well. And just who the fuck did I think I was anyway, coming to the South, thinking I was going to waltz right in, play a couple of chords, and suddenly be knee-deep in praise, cash, and bumpkin poontang. What an asshole. I opened the door out to the parking lot. As if on cue, there was an exploding thunderclap, and it started pissing cold January rain on my stupid head. Most of the other gigs came and went. I took trains, buses, and rental cars to Kentucky, Mississippi, Georgia, finding motels, food, and doing the shows. It was all kind of a big blur. I seemed to make zero impact wherever I played. People didn't like me, but they didn't dislike me. I merely occupied some space and time during their evening for between 20 and 40 minutes till something else happened. There was one really memorable show, though, in there. A place called the Florabama Lounge, a place built right on the border of Florida and Alabama. Much more of a college hipster vibe in this place, rather than the blue-collar audiences I was getting nowhere with. The place had a really good PA, and the room was packed with all kinds of people of a lot of different ethnicities, something I hadn't seen a lot of since arriving. I was playing my set, and I was going over pretty well, when about halfway through, an older guy jumped up on the stage with me. He plugged in a guitar while I played, and then started playing along. And he was great. That was good, because the last thing you want is somebody sitting in and blowing shit all over your music. This old dude could play any style and was just having a great old time throwing in licks and solos. After the first song, he said to me, Hey man, I hope you don't mind me playing, but goddamn, I had to have a piece of that. I'm Blue Lou. After this set, I was milling around by the bar when I suddenly felt the meat of my right bicep being rotated by a strong hand. I turned, and there was this big, ugly motherfucker standing there. He had my bicep in his hand, which, by the way, went all around my arm so his fingers were touching. Boy, did my arm look small with that missing link hand around it. I wasn't sure where this was going to go. The guy said, What the fuck is that supposed to mean? He was looking at my tattoo, a bust of a soldier from the Middle Ages wearing a helmet. Above the artwork were the words, Lost Anthony. I don't know why, but I looked him dead in the eye and said, It means some shit to me, man. I kept staring at him, 
doing my best to look like someone who enjoyed disemboweling people in his spare time. He let go of my arm. He looked kind of embarrassed. Oh, okay, that's cool. I just hate it when people get tattooed when it don't mean nothing to them. I'm getting one pretty soon, he said. I said, well, think about it before you get it. It's going to be there a while. He said, it's going to be cool. I'm getting a big fucking cow head right in the center of my chest. See you later. After a month or so, I'd finally played all the shows. The last one was at a place called The Chucker in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, on the night Bill Clinton was inaugurated. It was a total redneck biker bar. At one point, the whole bar started chanting, There's a hippie in the White House! Hippie in the White House! I drove back to Tennessee, and on my final day there before I went home to L.A., I decided to take a drive through the Great Smoky Mountains. They are really something. Beautiful. I drove for a long time. Out in the middle of nowhere, I saw a sign that read, Mountain Honey for Sale. Mountain Honey? Okay. I pulled into a dirt driveway strewn with old tires and rusted hubcaps. I parked and went to the front door. The house was an ancient, beat-up motorhome that had been there so long it was half-lifing into the property. I knocked on the door. A woman answered. She's about 60 years old, gray beehive hairdo, cat-eye glasses on a chain, fake pearl necklace, lime green pantsuit. She had a Virginia Slim perched between her thin lips. Yeah, she said. Hi, I want to buy some honey. How much you want? She said. How much is it? Five dollar jar, she said. I'll take two jars. Come on in. Bright orange shag rug. Deep brown wood paneling. A horrible drooling white poodle with crust around its eyes. Two tan-colored couches with matching ottomans. I think they'd been white once, but there'd been a lot of smoking going on in there. A hideous place yet kind of beautiful in a way. Good morning, America. How are you? She got two jars of honey down from her shelf. I paid. You ain't from around here, are you? She said. No, ma'am, I'm from Los Angeles. Oh, Los Angeles. That's how they beat that neck up, isn't it? She said. Oh boy. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, they beat that neck up out there, she said. Uh huh. That was terrible what they did to him. The whole exchange was so confusing. Here she was using this fucked up word, but expressing what seemed like genuine concern for the man at the same time. My head was spinning. When I told my friend Ellie about that later, she said, Oh shit, Jim, don't read too much into it. That's just how we talk down here. As much as I would have liked to have stayed in the South and lived there forever and ever, it was time to head back home. I also needed to face the inevitable. I lost my ass on that so-called tour. I was completely broke and I needed money. Fast.
I was talking to my drummer producer friend Rick about all this. He said, you know, you should stop worrying about this day job shit and start singing jingles. Oh, why didn't I think of that? Of course, jingles. Okay, I'll do that. I guess I just go down to Jingle Land and sign up on a sheet, right? Come on, I don't know how to get into that shit. Rick, who'd been playing on and producing TV and radio spots for over 20 years, said, I'll put in a good word for you. And he did. Several months later, I'd sort of forgotten all about the jingle thing when I got a call from a jingle house in Burbank called Ad Music. They'd had a singer cancel at the last minute and wanted to know if I was available to come down right then to work on a spot. They also wanted to know if I could sound like Mike Patton from Faith No More. Sure, that's no problem, I said. Total bullshit. I sounded nothing like that guy. But always say yes. I sang a national spot for High C that afternoon. They seemed to like it all right because a week later they had me sing for Frosted Flakes, then Ham's Beer, then Coke, then Bud, and on and on. I was making more money than I'd ever seen in my life. One day I was called to sing a spot for a pager company. Remember pagers? Seems like only yesterday. The spot was a reworking of the Beach Boys' I Get Around. They were doing it in a ska style, like the Specials or the Selector. Musically, it was really fun. They asked me if I could imitate David Byrne from Talking Heads. Sure, that's no problem, I said. Total bullshit. Always say yes. They thought it would be a fun approach to the song. A nervous, hollering, excitedly out-of-breath vocal was what they were looking for. I went in the booth and sang it down like I imagined Dave would have. He's one of my favorite singers, and I tried to pattern the vocal I was doing after a vocal he did on a Talking Heads song called Pulled Up. sounds completely out of his mind on that record. So I went for it, emphasizing certain words for no real reason. I'm getting bugged driving up and down the same old strip. I was pouring sweat by the time I was through. I knew I was doing something right because I could see the producer, the engineer, and the clients all smiling and laughing on the other side of the glass. I also noticed that three guys had entered the studio and were standing off to the side, smiling and laughing as well. When I came out of the booth, they all said they had the vocal they were looking for. Cool. Now they were going to put the backup vocals on. The three guys who are now in the studio were the vocalists. They were introduced to me. Jim, this is John Joyce, Joe Chemi, and Daryl Finesse. Oh, geez. These were three of the most sought-after singers in L.A. Two of these guys sang on Pink Floyd's The Wall, my favorite album of all time. And Jim, if you have time, we'd love to have you sing back up with the guys as well. Oh, okay. What was about to become the most embarrassing event of my life had just been set into motion. The four of us went into the booth, and we were handed sheet music. 
I don't read music. Well, I can, but it takes me forever. I'm dyslexic when I read music. My eyes dart down to the next line or to the end of the song. I can't seem to focus or something. I've always sucked at it. And sight reading? Forget it. Jim, why don't you take the root note and we'll take the others? Um, okay. Can I just interject here and remind you that we were about to sing backup vocals to a Beach Boys song? All those lush, tight, often quite non-traditional harmonies? And just what was a root note anyway? Jim, you're on B-flat. A piano note sounded in my headphones for reference. I sang it back. So far, so good. The other guys were given their starting notes. A basic B-flat chord would be B-flat, D, and F. But a Beach Boys B-flat chord? Oh, there's like a B-flat, a D, a high A, a middle C, or something that sounds amazing but feels so weird and non-intuitive to sing. So everyone has their notes and we sing the first chord. The other three guys sing their notes perfectly. I, who have the easiest job because the root note is the bottom note of the chord, the one most easily identifiable, hit some random note. <laughs> I totally humiliated myself. Everyone giggled, and we tried again. They gave me my note, and we hit the chord again. Me, Arf, just clammed it. I had no idea where the note was. Keep in mind, not only am I the singer... I'm a professional singer getting paid really good money to sing. And now, I don't have the slightest idea what I'm doing. A singer? Horseshit! I sucked! How could I go on? My confidence plummeted, and we tried again and again to get me to sing the most basic note. After 15 minutes or so, I gave him the easy out. Why don't you guys do this without me? Then one of you can overdub my part after. That was what the next move was going to be by the producer anyway. I just saved him the trouble of having to tell me. Okay, let's give that a shot, the producer said. I left the booth and went out into the control room. The engineer started rolling. The three singers in the booth hit the first chord. Absolutely perfect. They sang the rest of the takedown in one perfect pass. Then one of the guys took what was my part on the next pass and overdubbed it perfectly. Easy as you like. It was absolutely embarrassing. I called myself a singer? Give me a break. These guys were real singers. I was just some poser. I left there dejected, feeling like a total fool. Still made four times what they made on the spot, though, because I sang the lead vocal. Then I went to New York for the first time. I went there to work on music for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yep. A month or so previous to that, my recording engineer friend Bryant had introduced me to a man named Bob. Bob was kind of an idea man, and he'd come up with a brainstorm to license the Turtles brand and create a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles stage show that was going to be performed at Six Flags amusement parks all over the United States. Bob was looking for a songwriter to collaborate with for the show's music. Bryant told him about me, we met, and we hung out and talked a little. Then we just started writing. I think we wrote and demoed four songs that first day. I remember a couple of titles, Stick Together, and also Pizza Power. Turtles, man. Dig it. Beautiful me. Now this is a really big deal for me. Here I was going to buy God New York to write, record, and play music for a few weeks. And they were going to pay me for it. Suckers, I would have done it for nothing. Bryant was also aboard for the trip. He was going to be engineering. 
The studio we were going to be working in was at the American Thread Building. It was a place where jazz guitarist John Schofield had done some of his records. Being something of a fan, I was excited to work in that room. As Bryant was going to be engineering, and no doubt be first there and last to leave every day, he'd been given a set of keys. The first day of work, Bryant and I arrived at the studio together to suss the place out. We opened the door to an absolute disaster area. The room was there, yes, but there was nothing about it that resembled anything like a studio. It was a mostly empty room, with a few random cables and trash everywhere. No board, no speakers, no instruments. Nothing. It looked like the place had been robbed and ransacked for parts, which is probably exactly what happened. Bryant got on the phone and told Idea Bob what was up. It was agreed that Bryant and I should go up to Manny's Music in Midtown, get whatever we needed to make an entire studio, and put it all together. Just like that. Figure it out, Bryant. Create a studio out of thin air. Oh, and by the way, we're on the clock, so get moving. This is going to take days, if not weeks, to get together. I went to Manny's with Bryant and helped him pick up all the cables and wiring and other gear we needed. But once we got back to the studio, I was more or less useless. I don't know how to wire anything up or any of that stuff. I tried to help out for a while, but I was more in the way than anything else. I decided to leave Bryant to it and strike out into New York on my own. I walked the streets, wandering around, going through neighborhoods, getting my bearings without a map. This was pre-Rudy Giuliani Manhattan, before it got cleaned up, so it was still gnarly. It was filthy, angry, dangerous, and there were confrontations all day long. I loved it. Three or four days later, Bryant pulled off a miracle. The studio was together. It looked great. We finally started working. Bob and I spent a day or so writing a few more songs. At the end of the second day, Bob pulled me aside and said that someone else was going to be working with us on the project. Who? I asked. Bobby Previtt, he told me. Bobby Previtt was a jazz drummer. Still is. One of the greats. At that point, he'd just finished writing and recording the score for the Moscow Circus. Very, very talented guy. I was aware of who he was. I couldn't wait to meet him. The next day, Bobby came to the studio. We played him some of the demos we were working on. He didn't seem terribly impressed. You know what this needs, he said. It's too simple. It needs to be more interesting. The songs we'd written were very simple, intentionally. They were catchy pop ditties about friendship, pizza, and being awesome. Kid stuff. Turtle stuff. Bobby got in the drum booth and started adding drum tracks to what we'd already done that were basically heavy jazz. Lots of licks, brushes on the cymbals, lots of notes, lots of notes. We'd written these songs for drums that went boom, bap, boom, boom, bap. Simple, just nice and simple. And here was Bobby wanting to rewrite everything so it sounded like Ornette Coleman. Personally, I thought it sucked. That night, after Bobby left, Bryant, who also thought it sucked, and I, did some alternative tracking with a drum machine, simplifying what Bobby did. We didn't want to record over what he did, nothing so sinister. We just wanted to see what it sounded like simplified. It was way better. The next morning, we played what we'd done for Idea Bob, the producer. He agreed it grooved way better and was way more what he was looking for. Then Bobby showed up. Idea Bob asked us to play it for him. He listened, turned red in the face, and then went absolutely psychotic on me. 
He started screaming at me that I was sabotaging him. I was a this, and I was a that, and who the fuck did I think I was changing his work, huh? Idea Bob pulled Bobby into another room and tried to get him to calm down. Unfortunately, it was a room in a recording studio. All glass, so I could see him 20 feet away, seething, pointing at me, and absolutely freaking out. Idea Bob came back into the control room. He got on the phone, talked to someone, and kept Bobby and I apart. I felt terrible. Of course, I could see it from his point of view, so I understood why he was upset, but he was taking it so personally. It had been my experience up till then, as it still is today, that the song is king, and everyone in the studio is there to make the song the best it can be. It doesn't matter if you as a musician don't get to play your big riff, or you think the whole thing is going in the wrong direction. You keep your mouth shut and listen to the producer. Everything in the studio is the producer's call. The producer is the director of the film, if you will. And of course, the producer may be totally wrong. But you go with his vision because that's the agreement. You can't have all cooks in the kitchen or nothing will get done. And it's almost always a complete waste of everyone's time. Meanwhile, Bobby stared at me and seethed. Half hour or so after Idea Bob's mysterious phone call, the door to the studio opened, and in walked two gangsters. Seriously. Gangsters. Like as close to cartoon gangsters as you could possibly imagine. Huge guys, Italian, with dark hats and long overcoats. Mean looking. They walked in like they owned the place, which it turned out they did. We learned later that these were the guys who were paying for everything. They took Idea Bob into another room and talked to him out of earshot of the rest of us. Bobby just kept glaring at me. Man, this guy just hated my guts. I tried to explain myself to him, but he'd have none of it. When I spoke, he just ignored me and stared at the ground, shaking his head. A few minutes later, the gangsters came back into the room. One of them walked up to me. Are you Jim? Who, me? Uh, yeah, I said. Come with me. He said, turning and heading for the door. I exchanged a very nervous look with Bryant. Help me, I mouthed silently to him. He shrugged his shoulders. I left the American Thread Building and walked out into the cold December night with my gangster. When we got out onto the street, he walked a few paces in front of me for half a block or so, like I wasn't there. Then he stopped, turned and said, You know that building? We need to not be in there right now. Follow me. Oh, mamma mia. We crossed over to Canal Street, then walked over to Little Italy. At nearly every storefront we'd pass, the gangster would lean in, yell something. Hey, Johnny, how's your sister, huh? <laughs> and someone inside would yell back, I was just with your mother and she's getting fat. <laughs> and we'd walk on. Here we are, said my gangster, turning his face into the streetlight. He looked disturbingly like Danny Aiello. We entered a restaurant. My gangster handed his overcoat to the doorman. Hey, Tony, how you doing? He looked at me. We're going upstairs, said my gangster. Okay. Upstairs, we went into a smoky back room. At a table, there were several guys sitting around playing cards. 
I am not making this up. This was a friggin' Martin Scorsese movie. My gangster and I sat down at the table. Who's this? Asked one of the card players, jerking his thumb at me. He's a guy who's sitting here right now, said my gangster. Then he asked, Hey, you want a cannoli? Frankie, get him a cannoli and an espresso. So the very first cannoli I ever ate was there in Little Italy, upstairs at a table in the back with a cast of Goodfellas. I'd never even heard of a cannoli up until then. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, for fuck's sake. What did I know from a cannoli? Flan. I know flan. When I finished dessert, my gangster said we could probably go back now. And we got up and left. The card players all waved goodbye to me and told me to take care of myself. I had no idea what the fuck was going on. We got back to the studio. There was a short discussion that once again didn't include me, but included Bobby the drummer and the gangsters. Then the gangsters left. I have absolutely no clue what got said. But after these guys left, Bobby did a complete about-face. His drumming suddenly became less complicated, downright simple. The grooves abounded, and the world was at peace. Our little group there in the studio was filled with an air of, let's all work together and do the best job we can do. And we hunkered down and got the project done. And Bobby and I let bygones be bygones, and we became friends. Just like the goddamn turtles would have done. Which leads me to an axiom that I believe to this day. There's nothing that can't be accomplished if you cooperate, put your heads together, listen to each other, and be diplomatic. Or... You can just bring along a couple of huge, blood-chilling thugs. You'll get it straightened out either way. ¶¶